We are back, baby. We are back. That's we right. are back. You are looking live. We get after it. You know, we jabber jaw, we go tit for tat, we have our little differences. Let's get funky like a monkey. And here we go. Now batting. Number two, Matt Rooney. Number two. This is the Moose and Runes podcast. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, for episode three of the podcast. For Matt Rooney, I'm Joe Russo. Matt, before we get started, let's tip our caps to the cap. Derek Jeter's number retired last night in the Bronx. A really cool ceremony, and he joins the long list of historic names and historic numbers to no longer be worn in New York. Yeah, how do you, how'd you, I saw you, you know, send a tweet about that last night about him and A-Rod, and, and where, where, what are your thoughts on Derek Jeter, the uh, the baseball player? Do you think he deserves the, I mean, he deserves the number retiring and all that, but do you think he deserves kind of the fanfare that he gets as one of the greatest shortstops of all time and all that stuff, or is he more of a right place, I, right time kind of guy? No, I absolutely think he deserves it because there's few players in any sport, there's moments in time where you see the position or the game change. And Derek Jeter's a guy who changed the position of shortstop. You obviously saw some great shortstops come before him, but just an athleticism, that ranging to the six hole and throwing off the back foot. You didn't see guys doing that before Derek Jeter did it. He won his championships. He went to his all-star games. He checked his boxes. And, you know, you and I aren't New Yorkers, but they hold him in such a reverence that I can't deny it. That man's number deserves to be out there with the rest of them, with the DiMaggio's, with the Mantles, with all those guys. Now, maybe there are a couple numbers out there that do oversaturate that pool, but nobody more deserving than Derek Jeter. No, and I do agree with you. He's absolutely somebody who's benefited from the situation that he's been in. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think if he spent his entire career with the Arizona Diamondbacks, we're probably not talking about Derek Jeter in the same light. But he did. He spent his whole career, you know, at shortstop for the New York Yankees in Yankee Stadium, got drafted and brought up into a, a very good team already and was given his chances at a young age to succeed. And hats off to him, he did. And he, you know, still a 300-plus career hitter. Uh, like he said, kind of changed the way people play it defensively. And hats off to him. He, he deserves everything he's gotten. While he might not be the most talented baseball player to have his, uh, his number retired there in, in Legends Row, uh, he's, he's every bit as deserving as anybody else. Absolutely. Kudos to the kid. But we got to jump into some Chicago sports here, Matt. we got a full billing. We're going to talk Cubs. Where's the worry meter? Uh, are we sounding the alarm? We're going to talk some White Sox. They, uh, every time it looks like they want to go on a slide, they jump back with a two-game winner. Uh, we got TPC Sawgrass to get to. Siwoo Kim. Siwoo Kim. See him win. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That was We're good, actually. Go. I like that. <laughs> We're going to go NBA. We're, we got some things to talk about. And then we got... A very special guest joining us here on the Moose and Runes podcast, hockey lifer Dave Kuhlman. Matt, you sat down with him, got to talk some some Hawks with him, got to talk uh, you know some fun NHL stories. That's going to be later on, about 35, 40 minutes into the pod, and uh, it's one you're not going to want to miss. No, that was uh, – I'm, I'm a hockey guy, admittedly. That's, that's kind of my go-to sport. And if I wanted to and if it were good for the podcast, I'd have sat down with him. For, I could have probably had that interview for two hours. I could have kept picking his brain on stuff. But he – he answered some great questions. He's got a very unique take on the Blackhawks that I think might surprise a couple a couple Blackhawks fans in the city pressing the panic button. But uh, some great stories, some great analysis, and uh, it, it, it's one you're not going to want to miss, like Joe said. All right, Matt. Well, let's jump right into it. 
I'm going to give you a, a quick one right here. One to ten, one being cool as a cucumber, ten being hair on fire. Where should Cubs fans be at with the panic meter? I'm, I'm still at about a four. I'm, I'm concerned. I think my eyebrows raised, but I don't think I've uh, gotten up out of the chair and turned around quite yet. It takes a lot to get me out of the chair. So um, <laughs> I, I'm at about a four. I mean, the, the hitting, I think, is going to come around. That lineup's too talented not to. I think the one area for concern is the starting rotation. But at the same time, Theo's got, you know, all the ammo he needs to go out and get help there. So I think he will uh, probably sooner rather than later if this, this skid continues. So I'm not terribly concerned yet. I think there is you know, reason to raise that eyebrow, like I said, but they're, they're still the Cubs. They're still the most talented team in that decision, yeah. and they're not going anywhere. And I'm right there with you. I don't think there's that much cause for concern. They have lost seven of the last nine. They are hitting a team 236, 25th in the league, just abysmal. But on paper – it's still one of the top three ball clubs in the league. And I know you don't play the game on paper, but it's a matter of execution, not the pieces being in the right places. Some of those players really got to turn things around. We talked about this a little bit yesterday. Kyle Schwarber in that leadoff spot. Are you expecting a shakeup at that top of the lineup position? Schwarber's obviously a guy who you can move multiple places in the lineup, but do you think that this might be a remedy for the hitting woes? You know, I, I think so. Um, if not anything, to try and get him back on track. I don't think whether Kyle Schwarber is hitting one or five that you know Anthony Rizzo's approach at three is going to change very much. Chris Bryant's approach isn't going to change. It doesn't need to change. He's back up to hitting 300, whatever. But if, if anything, to get Kyle going a little bit, maybe to get him seeing a couple different scenarios, maybe he strives a little bit more with guys on base rather than you know having Elmore and the pitcher hitting in front of him. Just give him, give him, give him a different look because I don't care if what you tell him, whether you say, you know, yeah, you're hitting leadoff, but you're not a leadoff hitter. When you're hitting at that top of the order and you're setting the table, it, it changes the way you think. It changes your approach at the plate. And Kyle Schwarber is—he's a great, he's a very good hitter. I uh, won't go great yet, but he's got a chance to be. He's got great talent, but he doesn't strike me as the cerebral approach at the plate kind of guy. He strikes me as the, the grip it and rip it and I'm going to go hit this ball a mile kind of guy. And I think it's easier to have that mindset hitting five than it is hitting one. Yeah, and my argument against that would be that you only got to be in that cerebral state of mind usually once, maybe twice a game. Leadoff hitters are only leadoff hitters to lead off the game. Seldomly are you going to see a straight lineup turnover where that one hitter is going to come up one in the inning. Everybody in your lineup has to be able to flip that switch and go into the mind state of a leadoff hitter, taking pitches, forcing walks, putting the ball in certain places. I do agree that Schwarber himself could benefit from being maybe in that 5-6 spot just so he can free wield and find that bat again. But you got to have everybody in your lineup, 1 through 9, be able to be that leadoff guy. I agree, but maybe he's just at this point in time not that guy. And I don't think it hurts at this point with their 18 and 19, just lost two out of three on the road to their rivals. Give it a shot. See what happens. I don't think at this point they're not, they're not going to be any worse. I don't think they're going to be worse off for doing it. Just if it gives if, if Schwarber gets going in that lineup, whether he's hitting one or five, I think that lineup becomes a lot more dangerous, obviously. Give it and a shot. While, see what happens. Yeah, while the bats might be an issue, the starting pitching and the bullpen not getting it done either. Those starters yeah. are 10 10 on the season, not getting the run support that they need, obviously, but this is a staff that was one in most pitching categories last year. ERA runs allowed, 
things like that. They were tops last season, and they're all middle of the road right now. Some issues with the starting pitching right now for the Cubs, Matt. Yeah, and, you know, last year they got off to that historic start and, you know, kind of kept that historic pace going, which I don't think was ever sustainable this year. But I'm not sure anybody saw the drop-off for Jake Arrieta coming as quickly as it did. His ERA is up in the fives. He's, I believe, allowed eight home runs so far this season, which through eight starts the last couple of years, I think the most he had allowed was three. So he's he's definitely got some cause for concern. The command isn't there. There's about three, four miles an hour off that fastball, which is that that's that's the alarm sounding off in the head. I think we talked about it yesterday, and you said maybe the the, the panic alarm isn't sounding off for the Cubs, but the panic alarm should be sounding off for Jake Arrieta. There, there's something that's- wrong there. It absolutely should because we're not seeing the guy that we've seen for the last three seasons. And I might make I make the case that this might be a bell curve. He wasn't the power pitcher that we know him as coming into the league. He got with the Cubs. He found himself. He kind of found that location. And whatever the situation was, he became that power pitcher. This drop-off is not a good sign because it, it's either a bell curve where he's regressing back to his mean or there's something going on physiologically in the elbow, in the shoulder. I don't want to say in the head. Hopefully it is just in the head. But when a guy is losing three miles an hour on a fastball, that's usually indication that something, some sort of fatigue is setting in biologically. Yeah, and it, you brought up the elbow. You brought up the shoulder. He, he is a he's, he's 31 years old, so he's not you know that young guy anymore. But he, he's also thrown more innings in the last you know three seasons than he has really at any stretch of his career with Baltimore, he was kind of up and down uh, from AAA, you know, back to Baltimore. And the, the Cubs, when he won that, uh, the year before he won that Cy Young in 2014, was kind of the first time that he really got, you know, significant time at the top end of a rotation. He threw 156 innings that year, uh, 229 in 2015, 197 in 2016. The workload. The, the, workload. The, the workload might be getting to him. For a guy who's never really done that, to, to maybe, at, you know, 28, be at 28 years old when you're technically past your athletic prime to start putting those you know miles on that arm that elbow that could be a little bit more taxing a little bit more quickly when your body's not used to it after you've gotten to a certain point in your development yeah and the workload's been different and he is getting to that age and if you're putting on a pitching clinic for a 12 year old and you want to teach him a proper motion jake arietta is not the the fred mcgriff school of baseball <laughs> Like no. there's perking and jerking going on in that motion that when you do get to this age, you do see guys seeing some health issues. Yeah, and I, I think if anything, this it's a, it's a contract year for him like anybody's talked about. and This actually might end up in the long run if, if this is just more of a blip on the radar for him, if this season is more of a, an anomaly than anything, that he actually might be back with the Cubs next year because he, he might be pitching himself back into a situation where, you know, he's, he's willing to take a deal to come back and maybe he can bounce back then. But yeah, that, that might I don't be know the, what's going on. That might be the silver lining there, Matt. But I think this is just a case, if we're going back to the big picture here with the Cubs, of the panic meter. I think this is a case of expectation also. This is a different Cubs team. These are the reigning World Series champs. They've never been in that position. Everything you do on a day-to-day basis is going to be highly scrutinized. I was looking at a statistic this is the first time that they're under 500 this late in the season uh-huh. since 2014. We used to look at that stat from the complete other side. We used to say that this hey, they're is the, over 500. They're yeah. over 500 this late in the season since whatever year it was. So this is just strictly a point of expectation. When you win, you're expected to win more, especially when people, analysts, fans, 
start throwing around the D word right after one championship. They start talking about, you know, this is on paper, this is a team that could be a dynasty. Well, let's let's pump the brakes because that's very hard to do in today's day and age. Yeah, and you know, Joe Madden, I believe it was going into twenty sixteen, you know, when they won the World Series last year, going into that season, he had that embrace the target mantra. Yeah. As much as you want to say that the Cubs had a target on their back, the Cubs haven't won yet. So, so maybe they did have a target, and people notice like, "Hey, these young kids are coming here, and you know, let's let's show them what's up." But they now actually have that target on their this back. You don't real. you don't get that target until you win that championship, until you win that World Series, and it's it's a lot like the Blackhawks after they won that first Stanley Cup. Granted, they had to dismantle their roster a little bit more, but they struggled to make the playoffs that year. They they hobbled in as an eight seed, and they they eventually. Uh, got ousted in the first round by Vancouver, but it, it reminds me of that. That you have to learn how to play with that target. You have to learn how to be going in anywhere, any stadium you play in America, or have you know teams come into Wrigley. That this is their biggest you know series of the year. This is their Super Bowl. They're they're playing like it's a playoff game. Every game with against the Cubs for somebody is a playoff game. It's a different beast. Well, let's let's switch here to a team with no target on their back. The White Sox. Are they time- back? I don't know if they're back, Matt. Back from what? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't either, but something. But every time they look like they're about to slide down the chute, they win a couple ball games and, and they make it interesting again. What, uh, what's your takeaway here? We're a quarter of the way through the season, and uh, you know they're still, I'm going to say, relevant. Just, just when I think I'm relevant. out. Just when I think I'm out. They pull me back in. They pull me back in. They, they go do something <laughs> like this. And totally redeemed themselves. <laughs> so the, the walk-off win against, uh, granted, they're doing all this against San Diego, but the, uh, yeah. the, the walk-off win against San Diego, the big eight-run inning yesterday where Todd Frazier scored on the, uh, the sacrifice fly bunt, which I'm not sure I've ever seen in baseball. But they're a fun team to watch, and that's, that's really all they are at this point. They got a lot of young talent who's you know, still sitting in the minors, a couple young pieces who are already up, and they're fun to watch. But for the most part, that's all they are. They're, they're a little bit farther along as a team than the Cubs were when the Cubs were tanking just because there's already a little bit more built-in talent like Abreu and Frazier on that roster. Mm-hmm. But th- this is this is, this is is what it is. They're, they're a fun team to watch. They're not going to be there come October and if the deadline. Exactly. But th- that, that's, they're fun to watch. There's, there's nothing wrong with what they're doing right now. You can, in the major leagues, you can be in rebuild mode and still – contend and still be relevant throughout the first months of the season you don't have to tank like you do let's say in the nba there's not five guys who you need one of those guys on your roster and you need one of the ping pong balls to have your number on it exactly there is depth in talent in the mlb draft just as long as like you said you stay in a seller's position come the trade deadline that's the common denominator with all rebuilds is that there's no rash decisions being made when the chips are down and you got to decide if you're buying or selling, you got to stay in that sell position. And that's how you grow. That's how you build a farm system. That's how you put yourself in the right position to draft. You can still win ball games. You can still be relevant. You can still encourage people to get down to the stadium every once in a while and watch a ball game, but you just got to be a seller. Speaking of getting down to the stadium, watching the ball game, you uh, a little bit upset. You weren't in town for Hawk Harrelson alarm clock night. I was unaware that that, that was, was Saturday night at the cell was hard. But if you could get an alarm clock, night. if you could get your hands on one of those for me, it'd be it'd be greatly appreciated. Oh, I'd pay good money for one of those. <laughs> you kidding me? So, having the hawker wake me up every morning? 
You know, you know, Hawk, uh, Hawk has w- woken me up a, a time or two w- with those calls, you know, falling asleep in the fifth inning and waking up to a walk off. So, uh, <laughs> it there. Might, bring back, might bring back some good, uh, some good memories. I, uh, I, I couldn't agree more, but like, like you said, they're, they're a fun team to watch. There's nothing wrong with what they're doing. If they keep maintaining where they're at, that's fine, but just don't let your side, like I said in the first episode, don't trick yourselves into thinking you can contend this year. You can expedite the process. Just trust the process. Keep doing what you're doing. You're on the right track. Don't don't jump ship because you're 500 in a mediocre division and just took two out of three from the Padres. And another exciting point, Matt. Uh, I'm sure you had today circled on your um, on your service time calendar. It's it's uh, my my hopes got up yesterday, Joe. After that game, <laughs> Cody Ashy getting option down. My hopes got sky high. And then I believe it was a tweet from uh, CSN Sierra Santos that brought me down, saying, "Don't expect a position <laughs> player. We're uh, it's going to be bullpen depth." So, so, so no Moncada, just no Moncada, yet. probably not any of those young arms either, because they'll probably bring those guys up to start. But we're on, we're on prospect watch. We're on prospect another, watch. Yesterday at CSN, we had a, uh, we had the Sox game, game on one TV. We had the Knights on the other. It was fun to watch. Yeah, and, and that's another indication that this front office is committed to the rebuild. You know, they're they're marketing these guys that people might not know yet. They're marketing guys with the Knights and. They're making us aware of them. So I think that the, uh, let's call it the, the template was laid out uh, on the north side, and we're seeing something very similar now on the south side. I would agree. Uh, it, it, it's fun to watch, like you said. Like it, It's nice to see the organization kind of marketing those guys down in AAA, down in AA with guys like Kopech and single A with Zach Collins. But you don't really – they didn't really get it in you know 2014, 13, 15, whatever, when you know Bryant and, and Baez and those guys were coming up through the Cubs system, and you know, people would be tapping me on the shoulder, say, "Hey, did you see Avi Baez go yard in Iowa last night? He hit one 450." He's like, "Well, no, he, it's a Cubs player in AAA Iowa. Why would I care?" But now I'm I'm starting to get where they're coming from here. It's it's fun to see you know look and, and see what you might have coming down the road, and it's fun to keep track of when you're when you know your major league team is kind of more of just a middling team right now waiting to get to that point to see what the future might hold is fun. Again, no expectation, no pressure on these White Sox. Just be who you are, grow in the right direction. And it's funny you say, you know, back when it was the Cubs doing it, 2012, 2013, uh, those were the days I was at Comcast uh, working my internship under friend of the show, Dave Kaplan. And uh, I was doing some research for Dave on these young guys, on the hobby biases, on the Jorge Solaires and, and the moves that were being made and, and on the Chris Bryants and just getting to know this young talent coming up and it's it's looking very similar right now and that's got to be encouraging for White Sox fans you just can't rush the thing you got to expect there to be a hiccup in the road because that's one thing with the Cubs there weren't many hiccups and most of their prospects hit that was something that was very amazing and that might not be the case here you know you got to be patient and and I hate to use the, the, the term, but trust the process. Trust the process. That's all this <laughs> is. That's, a, that's what a matter of it is. But it, it's, it's fun watching the White Sox this year. I, I touched on this with you a little bit earlier. But it's fun being able to tune into a White Sox game or go down to the cell and, and you know, watch them and genuinely not really get too invested about what happens. Like if they win, yeah, yeah I'll leave feeling good. I'll say that was Comfortable fun. position to be in. If they lose, it'll be like it, – it, Whatever, okay, that's probably better for the team. I saw, you know, maybe some guys make some, Tim Anderson or an Avi Garcia make some strides, but they lost. Whatever, I'm not expecting anything this year. It's fun having no expectations. A win on the north, a loss on the north side, and a loss on the south side 
both go down as one loss in the loss column, but there's such a different weight to those to those losses. A Mentally, loss it's totally different. A loss on the north side has weight to it. It's heavy. There's expectation there. A loss on the south side is just what we kind of expect. We don't want it to happen, but it's it's a team finding itself, whereas there's not the expectation to repeat like there is on the north side. No, and it's hopefully we get to that point where they are on the north side where I am kind of living and dying with every game a little bit, but for now, especially after the last you know couple of years with the Sox where they – you know, put Band-Aids on in the offseason and sold it that they were ready to compete and then kind of flamed out spectacularly. Um, it's fun to not really have that expectation yet. Though I, I'm waiting to get back there, but hopefully something with more sustain, uh, sustainability to it. Yep. Uh, Matt, I know you're you're in a pool with some of the Rooney boys. Oh, yeah. And you had, uh, had Siwoo Kim circled this weekend, didn't you? Oh, yeah. They, so you get to pick six. I just I, I opted to only pick one. Okay, you just, just went with Siwoo Kim. Just Siwoo. I went in, went yeah. into this weekend. I had a gut feeling, Joe, and <laughs> you just damn it, off. I was right. Uh, some great golf from the 21-year-old, the now new youngest champion, takes that title from Adam Scott, youngest champion at the Players Championship, the 44-year history. Just did what he had to do to get it done yesterday. Bogey-free golf, and in a weekend where it looked like everybody who we knew was making mistakes. Siwoo Kim kept quiet and just played solid golf and, uh, and and ended up hoisting some crystal at the end of the day. Yeah, you know, it was odd because you watched that. I'm not sure how much of you saw it on Thursday, but you watched it on Thursday, and I, I watched a real good amount of it, and you had the big names out there. You had Fowler, who I think finished at four under. Day was up around the lead at five. Phil was, you know, middling a little bit, uh, I think, around even or one under, so huddling around in contention. And then they all just one by one started to fall off for whatever reason. And Siwoo Kim was the one guy that didn't. Uh, and hats off to him. Like you said, bogey free on, on Sunday at, at the players is is no small accomplishment. No, and especially when you're uh, when you're eyeing down that final stretch of holes, including just the amphitheater at 17, one of the coolest scenes in sports there at the Island Green. It's just a pitching wedge or a nine iron for these guys, but it's got to be the toughest one of the year for them. Oh, you're gripping that club uh, a little bit, a little bit harder because that course. And I've been lucky enough to play it a couple times. It does a, an incredible job of hiding the 17th until you're walking up the 16th fairway. So, right? so one one through 16, you don't see 17 at all, and then you kind of you, you tee off on 16. You're walking up and you kind of turn that dog leg corner, and you see the stadium. And you see that green, and I don't care how many times you played it, that's intimidating. Especially if it's at the players with all those people sitting there, and you probably just saw somebody ahead of you go in the water. I don't, I don't care how many shots you're up, that's in your head. And I guarantee it's in your in, in your head on your approach shot on 16 too. Just the evil genius that is Pete Dye's course course design. It's genius. Putting those, putting those guys in, in a lot of uh, adverse situations. Now, Matt, the conversation comes up every year when this tournament comes around. They like to call it the fifth major, uh, kind of argue about it if it should be the fifth major. That conversation was had again on Golf Channel, Monday to Wednesday, and then your big names flop. This was a step in the wrong direction to make the case as this being the fifth major. Obviously, it's one of the best fields of the season. Yeah. All the talent comes out. It's one of the best settings for a golf tournament. It's, it's the home of... American golf. It's the home of the PGA there in Ponte Vedra Beach, but uh, this this weekend was definitely a step in the wrong direction to make the case as this being the fifth major. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And I don't think there's anything that they can do about that necessarily. It's not, you know, the field, like you said, was great. Uh, the course is obviously in spectacular condition. The turnout was fantastic, all that. But just kind of one of those things. It's just the big, it, it happens in majors every once in a while too, but the bigger names just kind of flamed out a little bit. That said, I'm not a big proponent of this should be the fifth major. I think golf is, in in terms of its tournaments, or is okay where it's at. When you start adding majors, then you know what happens to the PGA. Does that lose some significance? Do all those start to drop off a little bit? I, I think the players yeah. are good where it's at. We go EPL on them, Matt. We relegate the PGA. Oh. We relegate the PGA to non-major status. Swap it out, huh? We relegate it to non-major status. You front load the you front load the schedule, and you let guys get ready for the FedEx Cup. The, the championship at the end. That's, I mean, hey, if you want to build the prestige of the FedEx here. Cup. I'm just spitballing here. Uh, if you want to build the prestige of the FedEx Cup, I guess that's one way to do it. Get all the big ones out of the way early so at the end of the season, so, you know, people are clamoring a little bit more for something to go out and watch. Sure, that's a, that's a thought. But yeah, Matt, we are, uh, you know, regardless of it, if, if it's a major or not, we're in the meat of the schedule now. As big tour fans, you and I, this is something that you got to be excited about as a golf fan coming in, coming into major season here. We got the crown, Sergio. We see we see a known name show up here at Sawgrass. Hopefully, we get some bigger names. Maybe maybe a Ricky Fowler gets the monkey off his back at one of these. But uh, definitely getting into the interesting part of the season here with the PGA Tour. And hopefully, these guys will show up because there were some no shows this weekend. Yeah, and even. Even in the Masters a little bit, you saw some of those bigger names kind of flame out towards the end, but obviously Sergio didn't. But like you said, this, this is the part of the season where kind of after the players, you know, things start to pick up a little bit. Now I can start looking forward to the U.S. Open, which is right up there with the Masters as you know, my favorite tournament of the year to watch. I, hopefully, like you said, though, we can get a little bit more of the big names to stick around in that one. But this is it's a fun time of year to be a golf fan. The weather's starting to turn a little bit, so after I go watch them play golf, I might be able to go out and play a little bit too. And what is your favorite major, Matt? Well, it's got it's the Masters. The Masters? It's it it can't not be the Masters. It's the Masters. I, I I'd lean with you. I'd say the Masters. I love I, the U.S. Open. Don't get me wrong; it's a great. I love tournament. the U.S. Open and I love the British, but those two are very contingent on location for me. That's and I think that's a debate we're going to get into a little bit farther down the line is uh, yeah. some favorite U.S. Open venues, but like you said, it, it all depends on location, and there's no location like Augusta National. You know what you're going to get. You know what you're getting, and you're getting the best course in the world. Yeah. So Matt, Matt we were talking no shows in golf. We had some no shows in the NBA in the last week. James Harden in a pivotal elimination game six, just completely lost his persona, his identity. He was, it, it, it almost goes, comes up short of, of what it was. He was a no-show. And that doesn't even do justice to how poorly he played in that game. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned lost his uh, persona, lost his identity. I agree. I think there's only one thing he can do now, and he needs to come back next year clean-shaven. He needs to be some, He needs to be a new guy. No more beard. That. That, that, after, after that flop of a performance in game six, he needs to be a new man. No more beard. Clean shaven, and you know you follow the status quo. You join up with uh, with Golden State. That's, yeah. that's the only thing you can do, right? Yeah, I think he's got to figure out a way to get on the Warriors or take Go a little back, bit less back money. Get back in that sixth man role where he's comfortable, or maybe head over to Cleveland. Maybe they'll have an opening. One of those two teams will probably take him, right? But all jokes aside, Matt, those are the moments where guys, you know, separate themselves and do become elite players. And I think that that was a pivotal moment in James Harden's career in in the wrong direction. It almost makes you wonder whether or not like there was something wrong, whether he was hurt. I don't know if he took any bumps or anything late in Game 5 or early in Game 6. I'm not sure, but 
it was that bad that it makes you wonder, was there, is there a physical problem with him? Was he maybe concussed? Maybe was he out of it? I don't know, but it was that bad. I've never yeah. seen anything like that. We've seen the Bulls as Bulls fans, you know, with two tremendous flops and elimination games the last couple of years against Cleveland and Boston. And those don't even compare to what we saw from James Harden. No, and, and we sent out our mailbag question. Uh, we got a response from at TDirty15. Which monster stole James Harden's powers? And that's honestly what it looked like. He didn't look like he knew what to do with the basketball. No, he just he had the look in his eyes. like what the, He just had an empty look. And he was like, what's going on? It, it has me speechless, Joe. I really don't know how to describe it other than what the hell did I just see. Yeah, and and it just goes to show that we are getting one step closer to the inevitable, Golden State versus Cleveland round three. And how about that Golden State comeback last night? It looked like, you know, they came out sleeping and something happened at halftime, whether it was that talk from Steve Kerr in the locker room or whatever it was, they came out and, and they took advantage of the Kawhi Leonard injury, but... They were a completely different team in that second half. Looked like an unbeatable force in that second half. Oh, absolutely. And I think the, you mentioned the Kawhi injury, and I think that might have been the catalyst that allowed them to turn things around. But at the same time, they still had to do it, and they still had to flip that switch. And just because Kawhi was out, it doesn't mean you need to go on an 18-0 run. You can still go on a nice run. They went out on that dominant 18-0 run, though. It wasn't like yeah. they let the Spurs hang around. They saw you know, Kawhi out. They smelled blood in the water, and they went out and – just took the game back and, and they took it back they 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 held the lead then they they looked they looked solid down the stretch they they, they did everything they needed to do to, to secure that two-point win but this is a spurs team also that i don't think it's going to be deterred by giving up I, I think that popovich just convinces his guys to chalk it up as a loss you're down one nothing it doesn't or oh one and it doesn't matter how you lost if Kawhi can come back and and be there in sub-capacity for his team, I don't think that we're talking about a sweep here. No, I, I don't either. I, I think, like you said, they're, the Spurs are a team who's been there before. They have a, the best coach in the NBA right now who knows how to guide his team through things like this. And, yeah, if, if Kawhi is able to come back, maybe not. He's, maybe he's not totally his full self, but if he's back on the court, Pop has the guys with Kawhi in the lineup. We absolutely dominated. We were up 20. There's no reason we can't do that again. So let's, let's just go out there. Let's keep playing our game. Let's be the Spurs. Let's maybe steal one here on the road and go back home and have a 1-1 series lead, or 1-1 series. And we got a fun one coming up tonight, Game 7 in the East, Boston. and, uh, and It's a Lakers. fun one, but is it that fun? Because it really doesn't it's matter. It's fun, but like, I, I made the, the moment will be fun, but who cares? Like, here, you won, and your prize is the electric chair. You get to walk yeah. a green mile. It's, it's just furthering this narrative that, Golden State, Cleveland needs to be played four months ago. Cancel yeah. the season because this is what the era of super teams has done to competition in the league. You're going to have fun games here or there, but there is no parity. There's no such thing as parity. Now, do I want to see Portland versus some other team in the championship? Maybe not, but just this reoccurrence of the same matchup, I, I don't think it's good for the league. No, I'd like to even like I know the NBA will probably never get to the point where, you know, a 1-8 series is compelling like it is in the NHL or, you know, in baseball. Obviously, they don't have 1-8, but uh, I'd like to get to the point where I at least go into a conference finals not knowing what's going to happen. I don't yeah. think that's too much to ask, and I'm not really sure what the solution is, but I really don't think that's too much The solution is 
The solution is you need to dilute the talent. You need to not... Now, the NBA has always been a superstars league. It, yeah. It's always been a league based on names, but those names weren't always on the same teams. you got to spread out that talent. So Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love are playing against LeBron James in the Eastern Conference Finals. So, I mean, as much as you want to build Kawhi Leonard or you want to build an Isaiah Thomas, those are tier two guys. Uh-huh. I mean, those aren't superstars yet. You could try and make them superstars. You could try and talk about them as superstars, but they're not superstars. There's maybe five, six superstars in the league, and they're all on two teams. That is the you know simple solution. That's the easy way to get past this is saying they need to you know spread out the talent a little bit. But how do you go about doing that? I feel like they've tried to. They've tried to make it easier for you know you to keep your own homegrown guys, and they, they, they've tried to incentivize, incentivize, excuse me, you know, superstars to stay home, but they don't. Yeah. They're still leaving. I, I'm not sure what more there is they can do other than making, you know, a hard salary cap and not letting teams go over that luxury. But then you get to the point where we see in the NHL where basically teams are getting punished for drafting well and, and home growing their own superstars. So it's a really tough predicament to be in. Yeah. And, and we are coming into what looks like it's going to be the third matchup, the, the third installment of Cleveland versus Golden State. And it's another opportunity for, if I can go on my LeBron soapbox for a moment here. Please do. Another, it's another opportunity for LeBron to find his moments. Now, we could have the LeBron-MJ conversation. We could do full podcasts on that. But until LeBron has his moment, until LeBron has his shot on ELO, until LeBron has his game six in Utah, he can't be brought up in that same conversation. LeBron James is the greatest athlete to ever step on the court and play basketball. But Michael Jordan, in my opinion, is still the greatest because, one, never lost in a championship, and two, he's got moments. He's got the highlight reel. The two biggest shots in LeBron's career came out of the hands of Ray Allen and Kyrie Irving, and if it wasn't for those two guys, we're talking about LeBron James as a guy who just can't get it done right now. That's what the storyline is now. But because those guys did it for him, and no offense to LeBron, he had the wherewithal to get the ball into those guys' hands and draw whatever attention he needed to in those moments, but LeBron needs his moment to solidify his legacy. He's not set in stone as the greatest yet because he doesn't have his moments. Yeah, and you touched on you know the the two biggest shots of his career not coming out of his hand. And like you said, that's that's just what he needs. And hopefully he gets that chance in this series because I would like to see what he does with that you know game on the line, that last shot, whether he makes it or misses it, whatever. But he needs that one more thing to kind of push him over. And he said it; he's the most talented player to ever play in the NBA. But he hasn't shown whether he hasn't shown that killer instinct in that he hasn't made that shot. He's had, you know, the, the huge games in game sevens. He, he showed up and, and, you know, put up the big numbers, but he has yet to really make that, Thumb like you said, that, that commercial making moment, Yes. that 30 for 30 making moment. He hasn't had that yet. And, and uh, whether know, that's as, fair to him or not, because of the performances he's put up in the spotlight, that's just kind of where our society is because I don't remember how many points Michael Jordan dropped in game six of the 98 NBA Finals, but I remember that shot. Absolutely, and it, we live in a in a 10-second highlight generation, and LeBron James is a living highlight reel, but like you said, the moment has, has yet to be has yet to be captured by, by number 23. You looking forward to a Mike Brown, LeBron James NBA Finals? It, it could be fun. Hopefully, 
Hopefully we get somebody mic'd up for that, or we get a we get a mic low on the on the court there because there's going to be some jawing done there. And, and when and when you're I don't know when you're looking forward to coach versus player storylines. That's the most compelling storyline from this NBA Finals. A little bit of an issue, but I, I think there are other storylines. You no, there are. There are. You have the Slim Reaper trying to go get his championship and. I think that, might, reaper, be a, I like that, that just, might, just, might even be a bigger storyline if if uh, Kevin Durant goes ring hunting and, and comes up short in year one. I think that would be something interesting to look at, too. You come up with that one yourself? I hadn't heard that one. No, that was an the old one. That, kind of, reaper. Like that, that. one. that one was when he was coming into the league and it kind of wore off, but it was still my favorite. I like that. I'm, I'm surprised that didn't stick. That's cool. You should just try and rebrand that a little bit. Can I go with that? Make that I, you make that yours. Well, Matt, we're putting a stamp here on the winter sports a little bit, and... Uh, we're now joined by just a hockey lifer, a guy who's done it all, seen it all, played in Game 7s. He's been in the front office. Uh, Dave Poulin, just a hockey guy through and through. Matt, you had the chance to sit down with him and do do a quick conversation with him. He breaks down the Hawks for us a little bit here. We're going to get we're gonna get into that now. Yeah, you know, I uh, sat down with him on Saturday morning. He was uh, nice enough to take about a half hour with me. Uh, edited that interview down to about 20, um, but I could have gone on for about two hours. <laughs> I, I could have kept talking to him forever. He could have kept talking forever. He, he's that smart of a hockey guy, that that great of a talker. But he uh, he taught me even some things in that. And I, I like to consider myself as, as much of a hockey expert as you can be without playing the game ever. Um, and I, I came away from that interview learning something on every question I asked him, which is, if if we if you're a hockey fan, if you're a casual hockey fan, if you're a diehard, if you don't really like the game, I, I challenge you to just to listen to him because I guarantee you'll learn some stuff some some stuff from him and uh, stuff to look out for next year, maybe when the Blackhawks come around or even in the uh, the conference finals we got coming up now. But uh, with all without further ado, I will uh, throw it to the interview with Dave Poulin. Hit the post with the shot. All right, we're going to welcome onto the podcast the uh, hockey renaissance man of sorts, Dave Poulin. He is a current TSN analyst. He's also a two-time NHL captain with the Bruins and the Flyers, wore an alternate captain letter with the Capitals. He was a pro scout with the Ducks, vice president of hockey operations with the Maple Leafs, and like I said, now calling games and doing analysis for TSN. Dave, how are you doing this morning? Very well, Matt. How are you? I'm doing great. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast, and uh, might as well hop right into it here. Everyone wants to pick Pittsburgh to win the Cup. They're the favorites, and they probably should be to repeat with the teams left. But I want you to tell me why they won't. Well, I had Washington going to the Cup final against Chicago, so you might understand where my predictions have gone this year. Maybe we should Um, skip to the next one. (laughs) But one team I did have going to the Final Four was the Ottawa Senators, and I think they can be a real stumbling block for Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh has had a lot taken out of them. Obviously playing without Latang, playing without Daly on the defensive side, but their defense has been really beaten up in the first two rounds. And I think that people don't realize that Columbus was a really tough series for them physically. And Washington did a good job of really getting to their D, particularly in games five and six. And yes, they've got a lot out of Ron Hainsey, their trade acquisition during the year. They've got a lot out of Ian Cole has been really, really strong for them. Ali Mata coming back. But I just think this is going to expire for them. And I think they're playing a team that has a lot of speed in Ottawa and plays a system really well. And I watch the Ottawa Senators a lot. They do not get a lot of respect. And I probably did 25 games total as an analyst and a panelist for this group this year. Um, They've got a really, really good system. They've got 
better players than people give them credit for. And of course, they have the superstar in Eric Carlson. And I don't think Pittsburgh has seen a player like Eric Carlson in this playoffs. They've played two good teams, but they haven't seen a dynamic player, an individual who can absolutely take over a game. And that's where Carlson's at right now. Uh, I know they've got great goaltending in Fleury, and Matt Murray appears to be ready to come back. We may see both Pittsburgh goalies at some point in this series, but I think they're, they've done a lot to get to where they are. I think Sidney Crosby was bent on repeating and separating himself as the only star of this modern, I guess, generation, the last 10 or 12 years, to, to win two Stanley Cups in a row. Jonathan Taves hasn't, Kane hasn't, Kopitar hasn't. He wants to do that. He wants to separate himself. But I think Ottawa is going to give them a heck of a battle here. One thing they got too going going for them, I, I believe, is Craig Anderson. I think is one of the more underrated goalies in the NHL. When he gets hot, I feel like he can compete with just about anybody in between fights. He absolutely can. And the knock on him has always been the number of games played and how he wears down through the course of a season. And if you look at his first halves, they've always been better than his second halves. And he's not, he's not a, he's a tall guy, but he's not a big guy physically. And through a very, very unfortunate set of circumstances this year, he didn't play a lot in the yeah. first half in the middle of the year. His wife, Nicole, was battling cancer. And the team told him to totally step away. And so he hasn't played anywhere near the volume that he normally plays. Mike Condon was picked up in a trade in early November with Pittsburgh. And that arguably saved Ottawa's season because Condon was terrific. This could be the best two, one-two combinations in goaltending in the NHL right now with Murray and Flurry and Anderson and Condon in terms of being capable to play. But Anderson, and I don't think he's been at his best in the playoffs, but as I would always like to say, as long as he gives up one less goal than the goal at the other end, then I'm happy with him. That's, that's a nice way of putting it. Uh, I'm glad you brought up Washington in that uh, first question, too, because my next question stems off that a little bit. Uh, where, where do they go from here this offseason? If you're the guy sitting in that chair, which you kind of have been before in the past, what moves do you make? Do you consider moving Alex Ovechkin? And if not, kind of what do you do? I don't move Alexander Ovechkin. I know there's been a lot of buzz about that lately. Here's a 12-year veteran that's led his team in scoring 10 times. The last two years, he's been second. He's a proven to be arguably one of the greatest goal scorers of his era of all time in the NHL. I think he is tied to Ted Leonsis and the Washington Capitals. And I feel pretty strongly about that. You know, they sort of built this modern era of the Capitals together with the new Verizon Center and moving the Capitals from Landover to downtown. And he was that first superstar. And certainly they added Nicholas Backstrom shortly after. So these two superstars have run the gamut and kept adding pieces around them. They just have to keep adding, in my mind, around Ovechkin. Well, I'm, you led me a little bit again on, on this next question when you brought up the Blackhawks, though, and Stan Bowman. Uh, they're going to have to get a little bit creative this offseason. Uh, got a lot of contracts tied up long-term, no movement clauses, all that, and they obviously spectacularly flamed out in the first round, getting swept, not really even putting up much of a fight against Nashville, who's actually turned out to be a little better than anybody thought. But where do they go from here? Because they are so cap-strapped. And like Washington, like you said, at least has a lot of uh, expiring contracts coming up where they have, have some room to maybe move around. The Blackhawks really don't. Looks like Stan Bowman's going to have to get a little bit creative. Well, he will, but he has arguably been the most creative general manager in the NHL over the last seven years with what he's done in, in dismantling and then 
rebuilding on a year-to-year basis around his core of six players that have won. You know, the six players there have won the three cups mm-hmm. and only six. And and that's quite an impressive feat. And yet I don't really see one of those six players moving. I think just as we talked about Ovechkin and Backstrom, I think you have to continue to build and rebuild around those six players. And, you know, the, you would say, well, <clears throat> Jalmerson's a reasonable player to move. Well, he's so important to them and to that group. And he fits in behind Seabrook and Keith. I just don't see Hosa with his age and contract situation. Mm-hmm. And you're not moving number 19 or number 88. No. You're just not. So, you know, the one the one option you may say is, would you move a Brent Seabrook? Well, Brent Seabrook would have 30 immediate suitors. And there are 30 now with Las Vegas um, if he were available. Even with that and, contract and the no movement clause, how long it goes? Yeah, he would. He would. Um it's too valuable. The right shot defenseman is the premium player. We saw, you know, a couple of a couple of the moves last year, but for each other in PK Subban and Shea Weber, and that commodity is too valuable. His experience is too valuable. Um, and you know, people talk about long term contracts and big money contracts. I haven't seen one that couldn't move yet. And each time we say, well, you know, he's never going to be able to move that deal, and then we see the player traded. We're like, well, how did he do that? There seems to be a way with, with different ways of parking money after long-term injuries. What is the salary cap? It's not really $73 million. It's actually whatever you get over it on long-term injury, and there's lots of complications to that process. But I don't see them moving one of those six. They have to continue. Hey, their injection of youth has been far better than Chicago fans give it credit for. Um, that group, they've got a pretty talented young group of kids coming. They've got another one coming in Alex Dabrinkat, who just won the OHL championship mm-hmm. last night. Another real prolific offensive scorer. And, you know, and the Nick Schmaltz, Hartman, that hero group still has to continue to grow. Don't forget, a lot of those kids, that was their first year. You know, can Avini Henestrosa elevate himself into, a, into an every night top nine forward? But the beauty of that group is they get to play with Kane and Taves and Hosa. And you can't replace that aspect of it. I still think Chicago is going to be a factor. I don't think this current group is done. Now, you mentioned Alex DeBrinkett, who's a kid who I'd imagine you've probably seen far more than we have down here. But is he going to be a guy who's going to be ready to step in next year? Or is he going to be someone who's probably going to need a year or so down in Rockford? He may need some time in the minors. And I don't say that from a disrespectful standpoint. Um, just in terms of getting used to the pro game, it's a much, much bigger jump than a lot of people think. And I, and I think time in the minors can be very, very well spent. And there's a certain maturation that you can get there. And, and I know the way Chicago uses their Rockford team in order to do just that and not rush players to the NHL. You know, you get the odd exception, but there has to be an asterisk beside an, an Artemi Panarin or in Toronto this year at Nikita Zaitsev because they spent extended periods of time playing in the KHL. And, you know, Zaitsev, the young defenseman that played so well for Toronto this year, is 25 years old and had seven years in the KHL before coming over. Well, that's not, that's not Alex Dabrinkit. You, know, no. you can't just step in and play in the NHL. But he's a very, very talented goal scorer. He's a finisher, and Chicago fans will love him. Uh, you brought up Toronto again. That's, that was kind of leading towards my next question. You got two... You know, arguably the next 
greatest stars in the game and, uh, and Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid up there. Talk a little bit about kind of both of their games, what makes them so special and how important, you know, McDavid making kind of the Cinderella run to the Western Conference Finals and even Matthews and the Leafs kind of coming out of nowhere, making that playoff run this year and even getting Washington a, a hell of a run in the first round. Well, start with the two young superstars. They're very, very different players. Mm. And McDavid is as good a skater, as explosive a skater as I've seen in the game. And his edge work is just remarkable. He's explosive, but he can do things at incredibly high speeds. Matthews is different. And Matthews, I did a chart one night. It was about maybe two-thirds of the way through the season. And I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the exact numbers, but if, there were, if he'd scored... 22 goals at that point, 21 of them were from his right side of the ice. So his offside, he's a left shot. And the majority of them were from within 15 feet of the net. And he is an uncanny sense. He's a big, big kid. People don't realize he's 225 pounds, I think. And people don't realize he gets to areas. He's in, he's totally involved without being involved. And he's in the high traffic areas without being in the high traffic areas. It's just uncanny how he goes in and out of those areas. And he's incredibly smart. They're very different from each other. And, and it would be interesting to see them play together, actually. I think they'd complement each other greatly. I mean, these are two really, really... I think they throw the term generational player around too often. I don't think they did with these two. It just so happens they came in consecutive years. We got some of the uh, the current hockey talk out of the way, but now I want to move on a little bit to your uh, to your playing days back in back in Philly. What's what's the funniest thing or kind of most memorable thing you've ever been yelled at by somebody in the crowd? Because I think back in your day, it was a little <laughs> bit more of a, a little bit more of aggressive fan base, probably not as afraid to uh, to yell at some players. Matt, we used to go into Madison Square Gardens, and the warm ups were an absolute free for all. All the people from the blue seats up top would come down to our end zone. <laughs> and it would be packed. And you can't imagine what they would yell at you. And in New York in particular, both the Islanders and the Rangers, the Rangers, for me, twice in New York, I was cut very badly over the eye in two different fights. And I wasn't a very good fighter, Matt. And I figured that out. I figured that out in New York. <laughs> and it, I believe there were different eyes, actually. So they would open up both. But the one was like literally 60 stitches over my eye, if you can imagine how much that bleeds. So... I cannot. In, in New York, I was Captain Blood. That's what they would love to scream at me, Captain Blood. Is I, and you had to go off the ice in the end zone, you still do, and walk down. So there was, there was lots of chance and time to yell at you, and you would be called every expletive in the world. But on the island, it was a little bit different. You had to go out through, well, I guess not different. You had to go out through one of the side doors. You couldn't go from the bench to the locker room. And you had to go down to the corner and they opened the door and you went out and down a hallway to your locker room. And so coming back in, they normally would put a cover over that entrance, but they didn't because play was in session. I had to go get a skate sharpened during the period. So I was coming back and of course play goes on for two minutes and I'm standing there and they are just absolutely hammering me. Every name, every just cursing me blue. You know, there's kids around you're looking around really (laughs) like you really have to call me that. And, and then somebody, there was quiet for a split second, and somebody said, hey, Poulin, you got to shave your neck. 
And everyone started laughing. And it was just, and you know what? I looked back and actually laughed at the guy. I'm like, you know what? That's, there that's was no one swearing. where you kind of just got to acknowledge it. Eh? What do you good. say? I'm thinking, you know what? I probably got to shave my neck. And it was a time when I was probably wearing my hair long. <laughs> and it was wet and up underneath my helmet. And I just, I couldn't stop laughing myself. I was like, you know what? You're probably right. I probably got to shave my neck. I don't even know how I'd respond to that. It's just kind of a turnaround. You can't. Where do you, you just come laugh. Where do you think Yeah, but it was probably just after, laugh. which, is, which is the funny part of it. Absolutely. Uh, how about, you know, everyone wants to talk around playoff times, you know, injuries. Everybody's playing through something. Uh, what, what's the worst thing that you played through? Well, I've had a few, Matt. Um, I've, I've read that you did have a Yeah, few. so oh, in, if I start in 85. Oh, I'm going to get to that one. I'm going to get second game of conference finals. I broke two ribs and uh, got cross-checked by Mario Marwa and scored a shorthanded goal on the play after I broke the two ribs. And in the celebration, you can see the first guy kind of hug me and you can see me wince. And because someone just sent me a clip of it recently because it was the same date and people will do that. They'll find a date that you scored a goal on. They'll send you a clip from that date. And it was just in the last couple of days. And then you see Brad Marsh, a you know, 230-pound defenseman, came jumping into the pile to celebrate, and I just evaporate at that point. So I had two badly displaced ribs, um, and that was in game two. I came back and played in game five, played game six, and played oh, five play games. three and four? No, I, <laughs> could, I, I couldn't draw it up. They were actually worried. They had to let it – they called it get sticky a little bit in there before they could freeze it. <laughs> And then in 87, again, I broke three ribs. Barry Beck, who was about 900 pounds, crashed into me in the end boards in Madison Square Garden. There was a little ledge on the boards between the glass and the top of the boards. And that was three spiral fractures. So if you can picture the rib, the rib is literally broken spirally. Oh, God. Um, and that wasn't very much fun at all. And I sat out six games in the New York series, the Rangers series, and then I played, or the Islanders series, and then I played game seven of that series. And then I went right through the finals, um, and by the end, I was just – in the 87 finals, we lost in seven games to Edmonton. I was an absolute shell of a person. You know, you were just surviving on an every-night basis. And then, not unlike Eric Carlson right now, who I believe has two stress fractures in his foot, I broke three bones in my foot in 89 in the first game of the conference finals. And I remember it was Chris Chelios with the puck in Montreal – and I, we were shorthanded, and he had the whole width of the ice to dump it in, and he hit me in the foot. And I remember looking at him going, Telly, are you kidding me? You had the whole ice surface, and you choose to hit me in the foot. But it broke three bones. I wore my skate so small, Matt, that my foot was literally frozen once it was in the skate. And I wore, I wore a nine-and-a-half shoe, and I wore six-and-a-half skates. And it was so jammed in there and so tight. So essentially... As long as I could get my foot into the boot, then I could play because it was frozen anyway. So I played the remaining five games of that conference final series. Um, not very comfortable. Not very comfortable. So those are probably, you know, probably the worst injury I had was a broken jaw. Um, and that was a f- former Chicago Blackhawk, Eddie Olchuk, when he was in Winnipeg, um, full slap shot right in the face and displaced from about maybe 30 feet and displaced my jaw totally but i sat out like four weeks with that i wasn't i didn't play matt rooney tough guy with that one yeah well i dislocated my pinky freshman year football last week and still played that game so 
<laughs> I guess we're, uh, we're you know, cut from the same cloth. But, Remarkable uh, toughness. Exactly. And we won the game. I was fine. Uh, I'm glad you brought up that 1985 playoff year because that's year one of the years you went up with uh, Wayne Gretzky in the Stanley Cup Finals. Whether you're a big hockey fan, whether you don't know hockey, you, you know Wayne Gretzky and you know he's the best player to ever lace him up. What, what was it like trying to go up against Wayne Gretzky, beat Wayne Gretzky, and probably trying to be the guy who shuts him down, if I'm not correct? Yeah, he was a pretty special player. And, you know, I had the opportunity. My role developed early in my career. I was a pretty offensive player. If you look at my point totals, um, my first couple of years, I had 30 goals in the league and 75-ish points. Um, but I was a good defensive player, and that's what my career really morphed into. And I played against the other team's best players. So anytime Wayne Gretzky or Mario Lemieux or Danny Savard or Mark, Mark Messier, though anytime those superstars were on the ice, Adam Oates, that's what I did. And you would drive to the rink some nights and you'd think to yourself, you know, really? Like, there's got to be a better way to make a living than every time I look out there and 99's out there, I'm following them around. But he was so special and those were special teams. And, you know, I look at our Flyers teams. We had great teams. They had great players and great teams. And, you know, we had one Hall of Famer in that group, Mark Howe who was a very special player. Well, they had like eight Hall of Famers, um, starting from the Net and Grant Fuhr on out to, you know, to Paul Coffey and, and up, you know, Yari Curry and Messier and Gretzky and Glenn Anderson and just such a plethora of superstars. Um, Gretzky saw the game differently. He, it slowed down to, for him to a whole different level. His level of awareness was staggering. And I had an opportunity later in my career to room with him during a world tournament and he said to me one day, why, why did you guys change the color of the metal strips on your glass? And I just looked at him. I'm like, you play in our building once a year. And you're asking me a question. I'll guarantee you, most of our team has no idea that the color of the metal strips on the glass changed. He just saw things differently. And his awareness and the way he made players great, he was, uh, his level of deception was like no other. And he saw the entire ice and what was happening before it happened. Other than Wayne Gretzky, who is the best player you ever tried to shut down or had to play against? Yeah, it would be Mario Lemieux. I mean, Mario Lemieux is six foot five, two hundred and forty pounds. That's it. You know, yeah, people don't realize that. And there's a in '89 another recent memory that was brought up by my own statistician guy at, at TSN. He sent it to me on this day. He sent me the box score from the conference finals in 1989. And the morning of the fifth game, I woke up in Pittsburgh in the hotel, and there was a headline, and it said, Poulin and Sutter shut down Lemieux. Now, this is before game five. The series is tied 2-2. I can't even eat my cornflakes at this point, right? I'm looking at it like, are you kidding? I'm not shutting down Lemieux. You don't shut down Lemieux. And you'd have to go back to the record books that night because that night, and this is what the statistician was, was quizzing me about, that night Mario Lemieux had five goals and three assists in the playoffs. <laughs> and I believe the goals were scored five different ways. I believe he had a power play, a shorthanded, a four-on-four, four, a five-on-five, five, and an empty net goal. And so my statistician sent me this note and he said, how did this happen? And I said, oh, well, I had him pretty much shut down, but then he had an empty net goal. And... <laughs> And then I said, but you have to flash forward to game seven because it shows I have a short memory. And we came back and won the series 
and I had the shorthanded game-winning goal in Game 7. So I guess I got the last laugh on that one. Well, that's about all I got for you. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, and uh, it was really fun talking. You had some great stories, great insight, and uh, hopefully once the uh, Blackhawks make a move or something here come July 1 or, or a big trade before then, we can get you back on and talk about it. It was a pleasure, Matt. Good luck with the podcast. This guy's money, Eddie. How about that, Matt? Dave Poulin, again, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Some great stuff in there. Uh, s- s- some awesome stories and a couple takeaways that I was uh, a little bit surprised upon, surprised by. His, his level of urgency with the Hawks didn't seem to be where it might be here in Chicago. No, I think... Um... One thing that might have helped is is seeing what Nashville's kind of done, and it's it's more of a oh they're actually a really good team. They're not just you know some team that you know, some bad team that steamrolled the Hawks and then got eliminated in the second round. But another thing is he, he's farther removed from the situation. He has a little bit more of a neutral, unbiased eye, and I think you got to trust that he's a guy who's been around, seen you know seen teams, been in that general manager's chair, and, and the way he spoke about the Blackhawks, the way he spoke about their young talent coming up. Uh, it's a little bit encouraging. I was I was surprised that he kind of said the guys like Seabrook and Jalmerson, he'd be very surprised to see moved. Um, I would have guessed those would probably be the first two names on the chopping block for Stan Bowman. But uh, when he said, you know, if, if the Blackhawks are looking to move Brent Seabrook, that you know, public enemy number one, I feel like in a lot of Blackhawks fans' eyes, that, that 30 other teams would be on the phone lining up to talk, talk to you about him. That one surprised me a little bit. I didn't see that coming. Another thing that surprised me, one of my favorite takeaways, I guess I never really realized how big, how enormous Mario Lemieux was and just how dominant of a player he was. That story about not being able to use cornflakes, perfect. That was that, that, that part got me laughing a little bit. But yeah, he, I never really put two and two together, and then he kind of talked about it, and I was thinking about all the times I've seen Lemieux on TV in the press box, you know, taking the cup for Pittsburgh. He is a massive human being, but... You, you talked. We talked about it a little bit um, after we recorded the interview. Some things we wanted to hit on. You brought up the the reverence with which he spoke about Lemieux was up there with that of Gretzky. Yeah, just just almost. And I said like the way he talked about Lemieux, you could hear it in his voice that like that was his rival. Maybe not as much as Wayner was, but just like you said, the reverence in which he held these guys. Yeah, and it, it makes sense. You know him being. Uh, Eastern Conference guy the entirety of his career being a Philly guy so he obviously had that built in rivalry with Pittsburgh the playoff series it makes more sense that you know, he had a little bit more not respect but I guess reverence for the way he talked about Lemieux than a lot of people do compared to Gretzky but man some of that that story about the cornflakes and then Lemieux lighting them up for, <laughs> lighting them up for eight points in game six of the or game five of the Eastern Conference final was, so was good, really man. something it just showed you how good Mario Lemieux was when he wanted to be that's the dominance that uh, that'll make you that'll make you talk about a guy that way about 20 years 30 years later yeah yeah well again we got to thank Dave Poulin for joining the podcast hope we get him back on here during the next season talk a little bit of Hawks see see where we're at with uh, with, with the with the red sweaters and um, again, major thank you to Dave for, for jumping on the Moose and Runes podcast. Yeah, unbelievable. Uh, really appreciate all the time. Matt, I got something to say. Let's do it. The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're going to hear about it. You can't handle the truth. Boy, have you lost your mind, because I'll help you find it. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. I award you no points 
and may God have mercy on your soul. Matt, last week I talked about fans and feeling the comfort of being in the state and, and just how wrong they are sometimes and how there's no place for what happened in Boston. There's absolutely no place for racial epitaphs. There's no place for poor language. And I understand you're at a sporting event, sometimes things get heated. There's no place for that. But there is a place for heckling. My grievance this week is on overcorrection. A lot of times what we do as a society is when there's a problem, we correct it and then we continue and we overcorrect. Uh, let's take politics, for instance. We went Reagan to Clinton. We went Clinton to Bush. We went Bush to Obama. We went Obama to this, <laughs> you want to call it. But that's what we do. We need your back the other way. We've all done it. Golfers, you've been on the tee. You've snap hooked one left, got to the next tee, and blocked one to the right. It's what you do. You overcorrect when there's an issue. Let's not overcorrect here. There is a place in sports for heckling. It's a home field advantage. Matt, we saw it at Illinois Wesleyan with the fabled balk off. Heckle the pitcher, balked in the winning run. It was it was something to be beheld. And I know that's on a, a smaller scale, but that just goes to show what heckling can do. You're talking to a seasoned former heckler. It takes a little bit of clever cleverness and, and wit to heckle. Do your homework. Have something constructive to say. Get on Google, find something on the Wikipedia page, but keep it clean, keep it savory, and understand your surroundings. Understand that there's a 10-year-old at his first baseball game sitting next to you. Understand that there's a husband and wife sitting in the row behind you. And understand that people have feelings and that there's a time and a place for proper heckling. So let's not overcorrect. Let's not lose heckling because some people have taken it too far. Be clever, be witty. But heckle. Have fun with it, right? Have fun. Have fun with it. There, there's room for fun in this in these games. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to go a little bit of a different path here. Um, I, I, I think both of mine so far have been loosely based off baseball, but I'm, I'm going to stick to that theme again here. Uh, I, I read an article, I believe it was early last week, uh, from David Haw in the Chicago Tribune. Joe, please don't drop things while I'm talking. That was my coffee. <laughs> Uh, you do your grievance, Matt. I'm going to do a little clean. Well, that is my grievance. All right. Spilled milk. I do cry over spilled milk. Um, the Cubs don't need to panic yet, but there is room for improvement. And, and I think the most logical step, path for improvement lies on the south side of Chicago, just 8.1 miles south of Wrigley Field in Jose Quintana. And there, there's a contingent... Granted, much smaller than last year when the Sox were shopping Chris Sale, but there's a contingent of fans, maybe a little bit on both sides of town, that, you know, we shouldn't deal with each other. Those teams shouldn't, you know, help each other out or do what's what's best for their club if it means helping out the other side of town. And that is so incredibly wrong. If Now, especially with the Cubs having already taken that step, and if, if you do trade Quintana and they win a World Series, you weren't the, the one who gave them that piece that got them that first World Series in 108 years, which shouldn't matter, but... What people wanted to talk about that with sales is, is mattering. If if the Cubs present you the best offer for Jose Quintana, the White Sox would be foolish to not take it. And I don't think there's a team and organization out there, maybe outside of the New York Yankees, who can offer a better package, better deal, better way to set your franchise in a better spot than the Cubs can. And 
I guess I just challenge Sox fans to, if that does happen, if, if the Sox do move Quintana, to embrace that, to embrace him going to the Cubs because he makes the most sense for the Cubs too. Who are they going to go out and get right now? They're going to get Chris Archer, who's been who was an ace a couple years ago and is now kind of going the other direction. They're going to go out and take a flyer on Matt Harvey, who's a clubhouse cancer. No, Jose Quintana is the best pitcher on the market. They need a top end of the rotation kind of guy to slot in now, you know, after Hendricks, before Arietta. And if they get that Jose Quintana lefty steady, is what he is, Jose Quintana in that rotation, they become instantly again the favorites to win that World Series. And they can offer the White Sox the best package. And what this is about is not, not helping the other team who you might be rivals with because they, they play baseball games close to you, but it's about doing what's best for your club. And in this situation, this move makes sense for both sides. Do what's best for your club. Don't worry about what your fans think. Don't worry about whether or not Jose Quintana is going to help get the Cubs over that mountain if that package back helps the Sox get back to that peak as well. That's it. Completely agree with you, Matt. It's it's a, I'd call it a, a blind childish loyalty yeah. that, that can't come into play when you're talking about making major decisions having to do with the future of your organization. Like you said, if that's the best package available, you pull that trigger and you you just let Jose Quintana walk or jump on the red line or whatever he's got to do. It doesn't matter who you're trading him to. I could understand if the Cubs and the Sox were in the same division yeah. or if it's the Cubs trying to make a trade with the Cardinals or if it's someone you play 16 games a year, someone you play a few times a season, and the only reason not to do it would be out of that blind childish loyalty to some – unspoken rule that yeah. I never really understood. I, I got it with Chris Sale. I didn't agree with it. I didn't agree with the sentiment with Chris Sale, but I understood where people were coming from last year when the Sox were shopping him, and obviously they waited to the offseason. But I, I got how there would have been a little bit of a dirty feeling seeing Chris Sale get traded over to the north side and then helping them get over that 108-year hump. Not that I wouldn't have pulled the trigger if that was the best offer I got, but this isn't remotely the same situation. I love Jose Quintana. I might even like him more than I like Chris Sale just due to his workman attitude and keeping his mouth shut, all that stuff. But this isn't the same thing. Don't be afraid to move him. Couldn't agree with you more, Matt. Well, uh, we're going we're gonna to wrap things up here in a little bit, but first let's jump into a couple quick mailbag questions. Again, we appreciate everyone for tuning in to the Moose and Riddles podcast. We love your feedback. We love your tweets, and uh, we love having you be part of the show. Today, uh, our question comes from Renboss23. He says, uh, uh, this was three days ago. As of this morning, the Bears are underdogs in every single game this year. Discuss. Matt, you want to you wanna take this one? <laughs> well, I mean, we, we talked about this in week one of the podcast, and when you look at their schedule, yeah, that, that first – couple weeks of the season I think it's first five or so they kind of go through a little bit of a, of a murderer's row with, to some extent and they'll kind of sink or swim early there but you can't tell me right now through week 17 that every single game they play they're gonna be underdogs they they weren't that bad last year they, they had everybody possible get injured they still won three football games I mean they, and wow I just said they still won three football games like it you was make a good me, thing you um, make me sick. when they're healthy they're not good but they're also not god awful they, they can they're still gonna win you know if they stay healthy five games I, I can't say when the lions come here whenever that is that i might not think the bears might be the favorites over detroit i it, it, i can't say yet that the bears are that bad yeah but at the same time matt you know it's hard to it's hard to forecast 
outside of Foxborough what any team's going to be. You never really know what a team's going to be until you get the 52-man, you get to practice, you see the first couple games. You don't know what these teams are going to be. Anyone can beat anyone on any given day. But if anyone knows what these teams are going to be, it's, it's the Sharks in Vegas. And, and there's got to be something behind them being underdogs in every single game. That's, can that's I absolutely be- unheard of. Can I bet Week 14 at Cincinnati and Vegas right now? I mean, if you want to, if, you, if you're a long-term guy. You know, Joe, if December, December 3rd, week, thir- week 13, they host the San Francisco 49ers at home, and if they are underdogs, I will go onto a website right now and lay some money on that. Well, I, I just think that uh, the Bears are in a position where, again, the Chicago sentiment with the Bears might not match the national sentiment with the Bears, and anytime you're welcoming more opinion, I think you get closer to the truth. So I think that the national opinion is probably closer than what we think about the Bears in Chicago. That's that's probably right. I, I would agree with that. We're a little bit farther away from the situation, a little bit more removed, and uh, maybe not as a Super Bowl shuffle Bears fan like I am. Uh, well, Matt, let's let's close the door on the Bears because I can only talk about them so much uh, in the month of May. You we're sure? gonna hit one more. We're gonna hit one more quick mailbag question. Do a little pop culture here. This comes from Jackson Casey Five, also three days ago. Song of the Summer. Matt, this is going to be interesting. What do you think the song of the summer is? Oh, it's that one with uh, with Bieber and DJ Khaled. Was it I'm the One? Wait, DJ who? DJ Khaled. DJ Khaled? Yeah. Is it DJ College? Is that DJ no. College? Khaled. DJ Khaled, Matt. Khaled, Ka- whatever. It's the same I know. thing. I'm giving you a hard time. I agree with you. I'm the One has that summer feel to it. I do think it was released a little early. Maybe three weeks too early to be the song of the summer. I think the song of the summer has yet to be released. I think we got big releases coming up. There's been murmurs of a Jay-Z drop coming sometime in the next couple months. And if if Jay-Z drops music in June, that could set the summer on fire because you know there's going to be at least two radio hits on there. Yeah, but to be a song of the summer, you have to have that... Like, it can be a great song, but if it doesn't have that summer feel to it, like I want to have it on the... uh, Like, be by a pool with... Yeah, if I want to have it on the radio on my my back porch drinking a beer or something, I I need to have that mood. I can't have, you know... It needs to set the right tone. You want to like you want to dance in the mirror to it a little bit. I, I see you dancing in the mirror to "I'm the One." Man. Big mirror dancer. Not, Big not when anybody's dan- around, but when that, that thing goes that makes- on, and if I gotta got the apartment of myself, yeah, I'll, I'll check out what I got going on. Throw on the slippery socks, a nice gold toe, and just Ooh, go. To- gotta be careful. Remember, Dustin Johnson hurt himself doing that. Hey, well, I don't know if I put you and DJ in the same athletic realm, but hey. I think you can handle the socks better than DJ can. All he does is play golf. I can do that. <laughs> All right, Matter. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you again. That's our mailbag for the week. Be sure to tweet us your questions at Moose and Runes for next week. We'll try and hit as many as we can. And, uh, Matt, you're going to shut us down this week, right? Yeah, why don't you, uh, before we do that, why don't you give me something that you're looking forward to this week to watch? Obviously, other than that thrilling Game 7 we got coming up uh, up tonight in Boston, Washington, that matters so much. But why don't you keep, tell me to keep an eye, what to keep an eye out for this week. Um, I'm looking forward to, now I'm going to take it a little bit local here, the Big Ten baseball season comes to a close. The Huskers sitting atop uh, the Big Ten right now. So looking forward to see uh, the tournament. And then in a, in a couple of days, those regional spots come out. That's just kind of on a work note for me. So that should be very interesting to see. But on a national level, what I'm looking forward to is just it's that time of year where, where conference finals get really interesting. And I know we kind of discredited them on the NBA side, but I'll be watching. I'll watch both the East and the West. And um, 
might not be the most glamorous uh, hockey matchups either, but that's what I got my eye on right now, man. I, I'm going to be all over those hockey matchups, even though they're not glamorous. I think he knew that already. Shut it down. Shut it all down. Shut it down. Shut it down. Houston, we have shut down. I've seen enough. Shut it down. But uh, yeah, so it's my turn to uh, to shut it down this week, and I had a couple couple different things I was debating going after, and I was even just flip flop just now to what I think I'm going to go for. But after watching that that Capitals uh, Capitals Penguin series and, and seeing the beating Sidney Crosby took to his head, and seeing him leave, he he missed the game as well with that concussion, and then he comes back. I believe it was in game it was game six where he slides into the boards, clearly goes head first, shoulders first, whatever, it's a blow to the head, and doesn't get taken off and doesn't get acknowledged and put through the concussion protocol. And I did a little bit of research. I, I, I tried to find out why you know he didn't get caught, didn't get called off. And the NHL, Bill Daly, their deputy commissioner, had his response was if the blow to the head isn't conducted by the like the the player or a stick that the concussion spotters are not allowed to take the player off that that is now up to team doctors which obviously is as much as they are you know doctors and responsible for those players there might be a little bit less ready to go jump out and pull that guy and the fact that NHL concussion spotters aren't allowed to pull Sidney Crosby from the game after crashing headfirst into the boards. A concussion-prone guy who's spent a good amount of time uh, on long-term injury reserve, missed a good amount of time due to concussions. That they can't pull him off proves even more so what a joke the NHL's concussion protocol is. The NHL decides to not even acknowledge that CTE and concussions have a link to you know head injuries and Alzheimer's, all these, these mental difficulties that players go through later on in real life, that the NFL, whether you like them or not, has perfectly admitted it. They've embraced it. They're trying to, at least on the surface, make you know steps to find solutions. The NHL has no regard for their players. They don't care about their players' heads. They don't care about what they're going to do 20, 30 years down the line like the NFL is at least trying to. And until they take those steps, acknowledge those those issues, and, and try actively to improve on their concussion health uh, you know, of their players, the NHL will always be seen as a barbaric league. And it hurts the league, it hurts the game that I love, and it hurts the, the sport that has become such a captivating time, even in this city of Chicago, that it's just sad that the NHL, is, as far as we've come, in studies of the brain, in studies of CT, in studies of concussions, that they refuse to acknowledge this issue. But that's all I have. Um, it's it's just disappointing. Man, that's extremely well said, extremely eloquent, and I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it's it's awful to see people affected by those head traumas down down the line, and uh, you know, hockey's such a sport that's known for its toughness, and it's known for its tough guys. And those guys are going to try and be out on the ice, whether or not they're injured, whether or not they're on their deathbed, those guys are going to try and get out there and lace them up. And, and someone's got to get between those guys and the ice when it is a matter of brain injury. Joe, there is a line in their protocol that says the clutching of the head after the blow must be immediate and related to the blow. So if the spotter sees a player 10 minutes after the hit holding his head or, you know, looking out of it, holding his head, whatever, they're not allowed to pull him. You've seen get guys knocked out cold where your arms go up. Yeah. Uh, your arms don't always go to your head. So is that, I mean, is, 
Did, so can I not pull him because I didn't clutch my head immediately? I mean, there's there's an issue there with. It's with, a half measure. Like, that's a joke. Yeah, at this it's, point. Uh, it's something that definitely needs to be changed and definitely needs to be looked at, especially when you're talking about the face of your league. Exactly, and, and a guy who is that face of the league will be for a little while more and has these issues. He missed plenty of time with concussions. Well, Matter, we hate to send him out on a sad note, but it's been an absolutely awesome podcast, an awesome interview. Thanks again to Dave Poulin for joining the podcast. Matt, great job with that interview. It's always a blast talking with you. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in again to the Moose and Runes podcast. We'll be back here next Monday. We hope you enjoyed it. Matt, what do you want to say to the people? Uh, thanks for tuning in. I know uh, SoundCloud right now might be the might not be the best medium to get this podcast out there, but we're working on getting into iTunes. So uh, bear with us for a little bit longer on the inconvenience, and uh, I guarantee it'll pay off when we make that move. Click the link. We love you. Bye. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise and a blessing in each trial. I swear I've seen a lot of stuff in my life, but that was awesome. <laughs>